What's going on, everyone? Thank you for listening to the American podcast, where our diversity is our culture. Yeah, that was the little intro. I don't know if we're going to use that, but anyway. <laughs> what's going on, everyone? Welcome to the American podcast. Today, we have a special guest. We have Janice Samara. Welcome. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, a real important thing to, to note is uh, Janice is a... Uh, someone I've known for a long time, and she is a, a very high and respected black belt in the martial arts world. Uh, I would do. Did we? Did we? Did we say that we? You are the highest ranked female, live, alive, <laughs> living female in the world. How yeah. amazing is that? Being number one in anything is great. Yes, it's an honor. Um, I don't feel it. But I know I've worked for it and earned it. Oh yeah, I I, I think all your the people that you've taught, all the teachers that are now teachers, and all your students have can agree that you deserve it. So congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. So how how did you get to this place? When I was young, uh, about six years old, my teacher actually was my mother's first cousin she was very close to and then when he joined them um, when he was training and my mom became a, a entertainer for a troop that entertained on the cruise ships and she traveled a lot they lost contact and then it wasn't until later where he remarried when he came to San Diego to start a school uh, he um, was going through a wallet and he found an, a name and an address and it turned out to be my mom's mom, my grandmother. So they looked her up, and um, they found my grandmother, and then my grandmother knew how close they were, so she brought them together again. And then he was already teaching in his garage, martial arts, and um, he picked up my three brothers and I every day. Oh, wow. When we were really young and, and, and just put us in martial arts, started... <laughs> Of course, he made me sit on the laundry basket for about three months before he let me train. Oh, is that why? Why, why do you think that is? You know what? I think it was testing me. I think from the very beginning, when I started training, or when I when he was picking us up, I think he was trying to see what kind of a disposition I had. And I was a, I was just a kid, you know. I mean, I didn't know nothing about. It. I had no idea. I had no knowledge of martial arts. Didn't want to train martial arts, but. And, and how old were you? Just before seven, turning seven. Wow. And I sat on the laundry basket for three months until he said, sweetheart, get out there. And he put me in the front of the line, you know, for basics and stuff. And that's how it all started. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. And so well, now you are the highest ranked female martial arts in, in, in our system, our roots are Kajukembo, but the system that my late master created was um, because Kajukembo is going more commercial, mm -hmm. competitive. He, he wanted to stay with um, more of a way of life. So with Sijo, Sijo Imperato, Sijo is the title that Imperato has because he's one of the founders. He um, 
gave his blessing and told Manini, which is what they called him, to to create his own system or his own school or structure. But everything, you know, basics and movements and a lot of that stuff, it's all the same in all the systems. And a lot of the systems are styled. There's just little differences and stuff that make it special or unique, you know. So, and and, and what what style in your style? How does it stand out? And what makes it unique? Well, it, I think it's the way that it it's the way it's taught, and and I think the priority and and what they really stressed was the development of the human being, the individual, trying to know that person, what their capabilities were, what their um, strengths or weaknesses were, and, and teach them in the best possible way you could to, to help develop them and, and see growth and progression in right. themselves. Um, so I, I, I think because it takes a lot, it takes a lot of um, caring, sensitivity awareness to be that kind of a teacher not saying that there aren't many of them in this world, but as you get away from the way of life, the philosophy of martial arts, and you start going more towards the competition, you know, or that kind of thing. Sure. It's, um, you kind of lose a little bit of that. And I think that that was the vision of um, Manini Christmas. He wanted it to be most beneficial for the individual. And he was your first teacher? Yes, my first teacher. First teacher, and how long was he your teacher for? Well, he passed away when I was between 17, 18 years old. Mm. So we started with him, my brothers and I, my three brothers, and I started with Manini, but you know, uh, I was treated differently he would take me uh, to like places like Sunset Cliffs or different areas in San Diego and trained me privately. Mm. And I, I was never explained why he did that. I thought I was like his pet, so everybody in class didn't like me and stuff, but you know. So you got the extra extra treatment, which is, well, you must I have seen something in you. I didn't, exactly. See, I didn't think it was special treatment because I thought so, at times he was kind of, kind of mean, kind of strict or whatever. But um, I, I, I could feel something. I knew that whatever he was doing was important to him. He was pushing you because he saw something yeah. special. Is what it sounds like. Yeah, and and my brothers, I thought were great stuff, but you know, it takes. You can learn martial arts. Um, you can be great at movement and and everything, but relating it to someone else where it's going to be beneficial to them in a way they can really understand it, grasp it, mm -hmm. is not so easy. It's it's you know not everybody can be a teacher. Sure, I didn't think I could be. Yeah. You know, he. Got, he was really sick at one point, and I didn't know how sick he was because he never told me. But uh, the night before he died, we he called my mom and he said, can you bring, they used to call me sweetheart. 
Can you bring sweetheart to the hospital? So he must have known that he was on his way out, I guess. Dying. Yeah. And we sat, and I sat with him at the hospital, you know, and we talked for like probably almost four hours. Just, he was talking to me about all the stuff that was like just going way over the top of my head. Yeah. I was like 17 and a half. What the hell did I know? What, was there a, a special message that stuck out you that know, stayed with you? Stayed with you? Gosh, you know, there was so much that he talked to me about. There was so much that he talked to me about that it would take me a few minutes to think about something that really sticks to me because he knew at the end of the conversation, at the end of four hours, he said that he wanted me to carry on his legacy, to be a successor. So he was everything to me. He was my mentor, my mother, my father. Back in that day, way back in that day, the teachers that were in it as a way of life, they became your your parents, your disciplinary and all that stuff. Because it was very strict. So if you did something wrong at school or at the house, you know, at home or anything like that, my mom would tell him, and then he would discipline you, right? Mm. Which you didn't really want. <laughs> him, <laughs> you know, right. he was a quiet man, right. but he got his, he got everything across that he he felt was important, you know. Right. So it was hard to, when you say, well, "What's one thing that stuck out?" And I think it was his caring. It was something about him that, that even though I was really young, I could feel how much he cared about the people he was teaching. You know, but see, back in those days, they would um, be very serious in class and everything. And then they would, after class, all the younger kids had to leave, and then the adults would stay in there. All the guys, all the, you know, and then my teacher and out would come the primo, you know, Hawaiian beer way back then. Mm -hmm. And the poo-poos, you know, the appetizer. And they would be in there playing their guitars and all that stuff, you know, and drinking beer and all that stuff. So it was like family. It's what they call Ohana. Yeah. You know. And I always wondered. <laughs> I was, even when we got older, my brothers were, you know, they were allowed to hang out with them. But I never could. He would, he would never let me hang out with the guys. You could never hang out with the guys, huh? No. So do you feel like, you know, now that you're here, that you've had to fight for you to sit at that table with all the guys? You know, it's funny you ask that question. Because <clears throat> since I started traveling around the world and doing seminars for Coach Kimball, which is my roots, um, incorporating some of the original techniques of because when it was created, it was for street fighting defense. I mean, real, real life situations, you know. Because how we train in class is nothing like how you get attacked on the street. And I can tell you that from experience of having been attacked on more than one occasion. How many times have you been attacked? Shoot, are you kidding me? Probably about as old as I am. <laughs> <laughs> no, I seriously attacked where my life was actually. It was a life or death situation. It was probably, 
seven or eight times. Oh my gosh, seven or eight times. The first time was, see, that's the thing about martial arts. Even to this day, it's pretty much male dominated. Or, you know, I mean, a lot more women are in martial arts now, but not like back then. When do you think they started talking about uh, assaults or domestic violence or violence towards women or children? You know, that kind of stuff didn't come out to like what, 80, early 80s maybe? Yeah. I mean, they, they would have serious stories. Mm-hmm. You know, but it didn't become a really big thing. So in martial arts, for years they never really taught us or taught me <laughs> how to defend against how I would get attacked on the street in a real life situation. And I'll tell you, because of my experience and being able to sit here and talk about it, I realized way back when I created Stand Tall, which is common sense defense. It's for people that have no time for, that don't really have the time to train, but they want something that will boost their um, confidence, eh? confidence, courage, some, you know. So I, when I got attacked, I had to actually figure out on the spot in those split seconds how to defend myself. Because in class, I was never grabbed from behind. Nobody ever put a gun to my head, even a fake gun. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. So it was because of the, the way the class was taught the seriousness and the, the demands of, of, of staying focused and um, appreciating or understanding what it is you're doing, that enabled me to uh, be a survivor. Right. And so I, you, you mentioned a, a gun to your head. Is that something that happened in your attacks? Yeah, my very first attack, I was like 16. And I was walking... I was waiting for my ride after a volleyball tournament in Lemon Grove, where that big lemon is. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was dark already, but it was early in the evening. And um, I could hear somebody coming up behind me. but I, And I could also smell liquor because I don't drink. So, you know, I, I pick up that s- smell or the scent really quickly because it was strong. Yeah. But I didn't turn around, you know, because I didn't, I think in my mind I was thinking if I turned around and he was right up on me, you know, it was a thought in my head, so I didn't turn around. So he grabbed me from behind in a chokehold and he had me bend over. And that's another thing, <laughs> a point that I'd like to clarify is in class, when we got grabbed, you know, by one hand or two, or they were punching at us. That it does not happen like that on the street, you know. When he, when he did like in class, we'll practice strangulation technique or something. But you know, we, we put our hands on the person's neck in class, but we don't really choke them, you know. We right. we we apply pressure. When they do that on the street, when you get attacked and they grab you by the throat, it's immediate. I mean that. Pressure around your neck is literally stopping you from breathing. <laughs> right, and you're fighting for your life at that point. Exactly. So it wasn't, it was knowing 
different things I could do. But I mean, because it happened so quickly, it happened so fast, the most important question you have to answer is, how much do you love yourself? And is your life worth defending? You know, is it important enough to defend? And you'd be surprised. Some of the people I meet when I teach my seminars, what their attitude is about themselves, and it's sometimes it's a little sad mm-hmm. because you know I I see it. Men are naturally thought of as the the breadwinner, the you know they take care of the wife, the kids, the, the supporter, right? So he's working his butt off, you know, he's getting housewives bought and all this stuff happens and he's tired. You know, if his wife's nagging him and his kids are brats, whatever. This man, one of my attendees at a seminar said, you know, at that point I didn't care. He said, I just didn't care. He said, I was so tired of just my life. So I realized if you're gonna teach self-defense, I'm really talking about self, yourself. Right. You know, it has nothing to do with the physical conditioning your body is in, how strong you might be, or what kind of condition you're in, or anything like that. Because self-defense is not. I mean, it's ultimately physical. You know. Right. But but you're saying it. It's deeper. It's a mental. And physical. Right. It's everything that you think and feel behind what you execute physically. Mm-hmm. Because if you're going to throw a punch out, you have no thought about what um, you want it to cause. It's useless to you. Right. Everything you do in defending yourself has to have purpose. Everything in life has to have purpose. Right. If it doesn't, <laughs> what good is it? True. You know, if I'm punching somebody... You can be sure that punch gonna have effect. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, because <laughs> right. martial arts does not exempt me from being from feeling the same things a normal, average human being would feel. I was scared. I could hardly breathe. I was nervous. I mean, and I, I used to be really embarrassed about saying this, but I was so nervous and so scared that. I peed in my pants, because, yeah. and yeah. I didn't know until afterwards, the policeman, <laughs> when he came, he kind of pointed out and asked me if I was a little cold, you know, but the thing is, is the biggest decision you make is, 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 should I or shouldn't I? But confronted by a situation like that, nobody has the right to take my life, except, you know. Right. Except my the higher being, right? I believe in. Right. So, and, and so that that was your very first attack very first at that attack. point. And, and did that stay with you throughout your your training? And okay, so I'm going to answer that question you you asked me earlier about what sticks out. Oh, yeah. What did he teach us? Sticks out. When that happened, and the police came because there it was a. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Lemon Grove or that big lemon. A little stuff. bit. And there's stores there. And on top of it, they had like um, apartments, little apartments and stuff. So there was a lady, an older woman, sitting at her little table at the window, looking down at the street, drinking her tea. So she saw what was going on. And um, she 
called the police. And the police came. And so they're asking, because I was like kind of, I I think I was leaning against something and I I was shaking really bad, you know. Mm -hmm. And he goes, "Um, who were you with? Who did this to this guy? You know, because the guy was laid out. You laid him out? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So she's like... The lady said, "No, she's the one. She, she, she fought him off, you know, and stuff." And he's, and he's like, "No, she had to been with somebody." <laughs> so that I, I, it didn't dawn on me till later what that whole scene was about. But they took me down to the station, and um, they called my mom and they called my teacher. I asked them to call my teacher, and uh, so they did. He came pick me up. And uh, they said, okay, we, you know, we'd like you to sign these papers to file charges against them or something. And so my teacher said to the policeman, I'd like to um, talk to her for a couple of minutes before she makes her decision. So he talked to me and he just said, before you make your decision, before you sign those papers, remember it's another person's life. Mm. So he said, think of it, you know, Take some time to think about it. And you make the decision. Don't allow the police to force you to, you know. So he goes, I'll pick you up in the morning, and, and I'll bring you down here. I'll, I'll be with you the whole time. So I, I said, okay. But I didn't know what I was supposed to think about, really. <laughs> but then he came in the morning and picked me up, and we got in the car. We started driving towards the hospital and uh, university. Uh, I think it's called University of Scripps. I don't know, on on Washington or something. Oh yeah, yeah. Scripps is over there. Yeah, yeah. The Learning Hospital for all the uh, poor people. No, I'm kidding. Um, and I, he went to the information desk, and then we went upstairs in the elevator, and we went to the nurse station. And he said, "Okay, just wait here for me." And then he went to the nurse station, and he was talking to them. And then he came back, and he got me. I thought he was gonna, he was taking me to the room, because they were going to prepare to like test me to see if I was like, I don't know, injured or raped. <laughs> I told him I had my clothes on still, except he had ripped my blouse and stuff. But anyway, so he walked me into the room, this room to the foot of the bed and then he walked out. And I, and the man who attacked me the night before. Just sitting there right in front of in you. Yeah. Right in front of you. And that man, I'm not justifying what he did, but he was so upset. I mean, he was crying. He was apologizing. He was trying to explain to me, uh, you know, he didn't mean to do what he did, but he was, he sure was glad that, you know, I, I could <laughs> I could defend myself, <laughs> that I could take care of myself, because if not, he'd probably be immediately thrown in prison or jail or whatever. Right. I mean, the repercussions would have been a lot worse. Because... He had explained that he had just passed the bar exam. And he went, wow. he rushed home to tell his wife, and they just had a, a, a newborn son, just a few months old. And uh, there was a letter, and the letter said, it's taken too long, you know, um, blah, blah, blah. I've taken her son. I've gone away. Don't bother looking for me, so he he was just in a bad place. It sounds he was so hurt. He was, yeah, so he goes to this bar that his friends own, 
Right. He's drinking. <laughs> and then he um, gets a gun, you know, that his friend had behind the bar. And he's going to look for his wife and the guy. He's thinking that, you know, that he ran away with somebody. But anyway, so I know what I did to him. I know what I caused. I know that he, well, the doctor came in and told us, but <laughs> I know that his male parts, you know, genitals were ruined for life because of oh, wow. ripping the nerve endings. And I broke three ribs and broke his nose and his jaw. Wow, he put you a know, beating on him well, and yeah. he, he probably deserved it at that point. Yeah, but, you know, so... I, I I thought to myself, the guy's ruined for life. He's gonna, if this gets out, he's not gonna be, I don't know if he could be a lawyer anymore. I don't know if they were gonna, what they yeah. would do. And I didn't wanna be responsible for that. You know, I'm alive, I'm, I was well, you know. Yeah. And then later in the car, my teacher said, you know why I did this, don't you? And I said, I thought you were gonna take me to get checked out or something. He said, so you know, he said, if you, if I didn't do this, if I didn't bring you and you didn't face your fear, you would be afraid to walk out in the dark or leave your house, you know, at nighttime alone. And he goes, you'd always be living in that, that um, insecurity, you know. Mm. And from that point on, Nelson, I, I was never afraid anymore. That's a strong message. You know, and, and but I didn't quite get the message, I know what the effect was of it, but I didn't quite get it until I started teaching other students and passing it on. Yeah. And realized that the caring of what you do and the seriousness of what you do is, you know, it's important. So, 10th degree, 10th <laughs> degree black belt. Yeah. What, I gotta imagine there's there's been a lot of struggle for you to get to where you are now. Um, is there anything specific that stands out in your mind as far as a story, as far as uh, someone kind of trying to block you out of where you, what you deserved to be at? Well, you know, <coughs> excuse me. Um, how do I even begin? Um, the talk that he gave me, he says, you may not understand, the night before he died, he said, you may not be able to really understand a lot of what I'm talking about, but I, I needed to be in your archives because when you do begin to teach, when he made me promise or asked me to promise that I would carry on the legacy, it within his vision, you know, because he believed in it. And I believed in him. And I said, yes, I promise. But I'm like, in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm 17 and a half, what the hell am I, <laughs> what am I gonna do with this? Because he was everything to me. Right. You know? So I didn't think, he was, I didn't know he was dying. I didn't think he was gonna die. I was wondering why he was even asking me, you know, but anyway, so, When he passed away that night, I knew it. I mean, I was driving home, and I went to bed, and a phone call came, 
and I, I just started crying, and I knew it was him. I knew it was somebody calling to say he passed. But anyway, so as a female, you know, I, I he had the foresight to to write and to contact his teacher, who was still alive, uh, C. Joe Imperato. Mani was one of C. Joe Imperato's black belts. So he had the foresight to write him a letter and say, could you please accept Janice as your student? And, and That's going to be a great honor, huh? <laughs> yeah. It, it, because you have a lot of martial arts people that they're called jumpers, and they go from one teacher to the next, you know? But the feeling you have, the gratification you get from being you know, with one person for a really long time, um, and then only going to somebody that your teacher has asked to take you on as their student. It's it's not just an honor, but I I didn't feel worthy, you know, because he, he was one of the five founders that created a system from you know, it's crazy. That's huge. You know, it's just like. Anyway, so because traditionally you don't you don't surpass your teacher in ranking ever, you know it's just not done. It's part of tradition. Right. So, but he wanted me to. He wanted me to because when you create a system, there needs to be the highest ranking you can have. Somebody, the person that carries on the legacy, needs to have. The highest ranking, you know. So, um, C. Joe made him a promise that he would take me on as a student, and that he would train me or he would mentor me until I got to a point where he thought that, okay, she's ready. You know? Right, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. But it wasn't easy. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I started out first. I started out teaching in Doug, my brother, my oldest brother's garage. You know, and then I got into teaching other musicians and you know a, a bunch of different types of people. Yeah. Um. But I did it in parks, and then I taught in rec centers. I taught like these programs for children and adults and stuff, but small kind. But then I had an opportunity to open a school in a building on Miramar Road. Nice. And uh, that was rough because I was actually challenged. It challenged meaning there would be instructors that would come in to the school, supposedly to visit, but checking up, whatever. Hmm. And they would sit. We would we were very polite. We would put the chairs out in the front, you know, up in front of the class, so they could watch. And they'd all be sitting there with their arms crossed, you know, and these are, at the time I thought they were older, you know, much older than me, but now they're not so much older than I am. <laughs> but, and then I also got, like, notes, and, and I had, like, weapons thrown through my mailbox at that place, saying, you need, you don't belong teaching, you know, martial arts. So are these your peers at this point? Yes. Yeah. They're, they're, these are your peers that that are threatening you because they were <clears throat> well they didn't you know women back then they women didn't 
they would might take some karate, but they didn't really stay with it or anything like that, you know. But they try they would try to claim me, if you understand what that means. Uh, people are always saying, Oh yeah, that's my school. You know, that's my you know, she's teaching for me. But I think it was more of a nobody knew I think nobody really knew how to ask me the questions they wanted answers to. Mm-hmm. So they would mingle among each other, I think. And there were some things that happened. When, when my teacher passed away, there was, a, um, there was another instructor who was living in San Diego who was um, not CGO's black belt, but he had a, um, CGO had a student named Marino Tiwanak, which was his first black belt. But he went out and, and charisma were the same level. So they knew he was really sick. So they um, contacted that other, the Reno Tiwanex, who was just Temple Karate. They contacted him to see if he could help out in the school until, you know, for when Manini got out of the hospital, right? Or was well enough to come back to classes and stuff. But then he... Manini was out of it for, for a while, you know. So my brothers and I taught classes. We're the ones that, he didn't know anything about the structure of Kenko. But, um, so we had to teach him. But there ended up being, at, at one point, some bad blood. I don't want to say bad blood, but couple of things that were really inappropriate happened. And so rumors started. And instead of my peers at that time, or the older gentleman who I thought were older, asking me if this is true or not, you know, did this happen? I think they just talked among each other and came to certain, I don't know. Conclusions. Yeah. And... I mean, there were witnesses and everything. So anyway, yeah, they. I think mo- for the most part, it wasn't. They just didn't know, you know. They didn't realize how much I had done up to that point, because I was young, you know. Right. But uh, from the time he passed away, I became a co-creator. I had to create and add to the system because he died when he was forty-five. 44. Wow. He didn't get to teach me everything he wanted to. Right. So So, you had to take it and and, and develop with it and develop. Exactly. And so that's that's like being a creator of a system. Definitely. Because you have to change with the times, with society, with the way people are living nowadays and stuff. And I don't think they gave that much thought. It wasn't a novelty to me being in the martial arts. I would rather have been doing something else, you know, really. But I made a promise and a commitment, and I was going to see it through. A lifelong commitment. I don't know how lifelong it was going to be, but (laughs) for as long as I could do it, yeah. Right. But I mean, because I loved him, my teacher, and and, um, I respected him. And he gave me a lot. You know, he taught me a lot, and he helped me a lot, and... And then for CEO to take me on as a student and stuff, that was like insane. 
you know. And and I was probably with C. Joe like from seventy two to well, I used to train with him when I was younger, but he became my mentor, my teacher at nineteen seventy two till he died, till when he died. And when did he, when did he pass? Two thousand and Nine, two thousand eight. Oh, wow, oh wow! And is he the one that gave you the 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 black belt, the the tenth degree black belt? Did that? Well, he tried to. He he wanted to promote me. See, he see you was the one that promoted me. What happened was my teacher passed away before I was just brown black belt. So what see you did is he had me come to Hawaii, and he had this. Um, he had put together a board of martial arts uh, sifus and masters and grandmasters, you know, all these professors, all these big guys, for my testing. And it was a three-day period of testing. And so Seijo was there. And um, I don't think they really understood what was happening with that, that I was being tested for my black belt, for Kenka Kung Fu, right? But because my roots are Kaji Kimball, the influence was very strong. So, Sijo's signature was not my black belt testing or black belt certificate. It was Marino T1X and Smiley Espinola, who were uh, students at some time, at students of Sijo's. For a long period of time, so he actually didn't promote me to my black belt, but he um, oversaw it all because sure. he knew. Because my teacher had sent him his gi and his belt for it to be turned over to me, you know. Wow. And um, it was one of those things where Sijo was like a father to me. He was more like my dad, and he because um, I, I never asked him. I would never ask him to, oh, could you teach me this? Could you teach me that? Um, but he talked to me a lot about life, you know. And uh, he knew that he did things um, not so respectful as far as Kaji Kimball, because when Kaji Kimball started becoming more uh, competitive and, and you know, when he started exchanging hands for ranking, and, you know, but Sijo, in his heart, he felt like he really devoted his life to giving something that somebody could benefit from, you know, whether it be if they lost a job and they needed to earn money, they could teach, you know, stuff. Right. And so for me, it was that side of Sijo that I was really fortunate to experience the human, the really human being side, because he would never act like in front of me the way he acted in front of the other martial arts men. Right, you know, because right. they all get nuts and crazy sometimes. He was very respectful. He lived in my house for three years once, and then went back to Hawaii for a while, and then came back and lived with me for another two years. You know, right. <clears throat> we were very close. And and he wouldn't give up until he was, till he thought his task or his promise was fulfilled. Wow, 
Yeah. Man of his word. Yeah. It, it, it sounds like so much more. Yeah. To sound like he was bigger. like a, a teacher, not of just martial arts, but of life. You know, Cathedral's always told me one of the most important things to understand about not just um, the physical part of what we do in class, but understanding that everything that we do, everything to the standing position has meaning. There's a purpose for it. Right. It's not just a physical position, you know. Your cover, your um, how you strike somebody, or when you strike somebody, it's not the actual physical contact that that does the damage. You know, it's it's everything you think and feel behind how you execute that physically that punch. So, if you wanted to do something, then that's then there's purpose. Like why why did the Kempo fist you know, what did that mean? And Sid used to say, it's like holding a roll of quarters because a lot of guys, when they fight, they're always breaking their, you know, little finger, their thumb and stuff like that. He says, but there's a meaning behind why it's positioned this way too. You know, and it's this very thing. This is mind, body, and spirit. You're number one. You protect your mind, body, and spirit. And the thumb is a teacher. They protect you when you're in their presence. So if that was taught more, if a lot more of us would spend more time, he always felt like the students would be so much more appreciative, you know, uh, that they, they'd have so much more respect for what they do. But it's really gone towards a real physical. When I judge sometimes at tournaments, Mm -hmm. I don't feel anything. Back in the old days, like, like when, I'm sorry, when Alan Abad, Grandmaster Alan Abad and Gary Forbeck, they were right around my age. And their wives, Gurley and Rhonda and stuff. When they did forms, you you felt something. I mean, you, you know, when I do a form, I can make a person cry, you know, just by the emotion, the, the intensity. I, I, I was doing a form and there was a lady in the front row. She started crying. I'm like, whoa. Because <laughs> you know, when, I, when I start my form, I, I get into the zone. I don't even, I'm not even aware of the group or the crowd. Because when you do a form, opinion, everything you're doing has purpose. It's for, it was originally created for a multiple man attack. So you're, you have to be a thinking person. You can't just be physical and throw that out there. Gotta feel it, man. It's like <laughs> I don't even know how to describe it. Wow. You know? And as a woman, it's like they don't see martial arts is so viewed as something physical, you know, defending yourself. I mean, women are conditioned to believe that we can never be as strong as men. We can never defend against a man. We're, we're taught that and conditioned that. Maybe not now so much as society because women are more bold. But when I was growing up, that was right. You, got, you graduated high school and then you got married and had kids. You know what I mean. So you, you, th there, there was some point where you, where you broke that mold and okay. changed everyone's mind. It took a while because I was, I found myself trying to defend myself whenever someone 
They didn't ask me questions. They questioned me, and it's a big difference. They didn't realize that. But it's only been recently, when I say recently, like within the last maybe five to 10 years and 60 years I've been in martial arts, where I've actually been able to face one of them and say, you know, what you said to me earlier was really inappropriate. And I appreciate it if you don't talk to me that way, or if you can't speak to me with respect, then I just assume you don't talk to me. I've worked for where I, you know, for where I'm at right now. I've been through hell and back. I mean, I, I physically, medical issues. <laughs> you know, I try to be really conscious of the things that I do, so that later on, as I get older, that I'm not gonna be suffering from all the stuff I did in martial arts. Right. Because a lot of grandmasters and and senior grandmasters and great grandmasters that have been passing away in the last year alone has been like, wow. The amount of them are, it's so sad because, and they they suffer from, because it was a pounding back then when they created They right. got hit, man. I mean, and they didn't think of things that they needed or should have done. And see, Joe admitted this, you know, to protect the body, you know, to, to strengthen and, and they they pretty much left it up to the individual to do on their own. But most people it's it's hard to be self motivated to exercise and do all the stuff, you know? Right, right. I can tell you that from experience. <laughs> you know. But anyway, yeah. It was hard. As a female because they don't they will respect you. They'll show you respect. But I think maybe I don't know. You know, I'm still. I still ask my question. I still ask myself: Is it because they don't know how to ask the questions, or they don't know that there's questions that could be asked? Because if somebody wants to know who I am, if they want to know what my lineage is, or my background, my foundation, all they got to do is ask me. I'm friendly. They see me at tournaments all the time, and in the years that I've been in in martial arts. All the years that I've gone to these tournaments, not a, and this is the God's truth, not a single male instructor has ever come up to me and asked me, so what does that mean? What is your, because we all see you at all these Kaji Campbell um, tournaments you're all supporting. What does Kendra mean? Not a single one of them has ever in my entire life. Wow. You know. Do, do, do you think it's because they feel threatened? You know. I wouldn't like to think that, and there's no reason for them to. So it, it didn't really cross my mind, but I think that because C. Joe never named a successor to the system, he named successors to the administration of the system, which is his sister, D.G. Emperado, and her, her kids, because he wanted to stay in, within the Emperado name. Right. They can never, all the, Senior grandmasters, great grandmasters, they can never pass ninth degree. Because see, you're never named a successor. So I don't know. I don't I don't want to think it's resentment or anything like that because it's got nothing to do with Coach Kimbo. But I was told I and I tried to do this with respect. Cedo tried to promote me when he was alive, tenth degree, and I wouldn't accepted 
first out of respect for him because he was still alive and you can only be one tenth degree. But it didn't it didn't I didn't put it together about Kenka being separate, you know? Because it was all for me it was all me. Kachikemo and Kekufu. So um that's it was difficult because I was told before so I turned it down. But see Joe contacted I mean he, he had a long discussion with the board of directors, my board of directors, and said this you need to do this for your teacher. This needs to be done. And I promised Manini I would do it. That I would see it done. That's awesome. So, That's awesome. I didn't carry the belt. I didn't carry the belt or the degree. I only wore the belt and I only uh, openly openly was known as ninth degree senior grandmaster because that was the last belt Cjo gave me promoted me to most of my belts were given to me by Cjo under his mentorship but for Kenka you know not for Kaji Kimmel my certificates certificates don't say except for the last one and I think he had a, a premonition you know because on the last certificate that I got for ninth degree, it says that I fulfilled, you know, blah, 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 all the criteria and all the stuff, Coach Campbell. And I think maybe that could be an issue with them. I don't know. Maybe. Well, I, I'll tell you what, it, it's a well, really <laughs> great accomplishment. And and I'm, I'm privileged to be here and even listening to these stories. I appreciate it, and I know um, we're, we're probably rapping, but uh, I could hear these stories all day, <laughs> and so we might have to cut this into a, a second part. So next time you're in San Diego, please stop by. I will. But um, I, what, what? How can people find you if they want to learn more about your your training and and you in general? Um, Is there a website? I think so. <laughs> you think so? I, I um, you know. I know that the board of directors are doing a website, but probably the best thing to do is just to look me up on Facebook and they can see, you know, all a lot of the stuff that gets posted on the Kenka page, you know, and stuff like that. Right. But, but And on Facebook it's just Janice Samara. Mm -hmm. There we go. Grandmaster, tenth degree, black belt. Kaji Kempo. It's Kenka Kung Fu Kenka Club. Kung Kung Fu Club. Okay. Google that one. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again for being a part of us. Uh, again, tell tell us the what's the program that you put together? I How created um, and founded uh, Stand Tall, and it's done only in a seminar format. Okay. And so everyone needs to Google that. Check that out. It's developed by her, created by her. That's amazing. From uh, from real life experience. Right. Of having been attacked. That's amazing. Well, I'm going to see you next time when you're on the American podcast. Um, <laughs> again, American podcast, we were very excited to have you on the show. Thank um, you. Yes, thank you so much. And this is, again, American podcast, where our diversity is our culture. Thank you again, Janice, for thank being you. on our show. Thank you so much, Nelson.